My name is Pastor Mike Landsman, and this is the podcast for Zion Stone United Church of Christ. This podcast is taken from my weekly Sunday morning sermons. I pray that as you listen to them, they will be a blessing to you and strengthen you in your walk with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Here's what we have for today. So we have been going through a sermon series that I've been preaching on called uh, The Church Is, The Church Is Not. And uh, we sort of prefaced it all with uh, the sermon that I preached on uh, baptism and its rivals. And I talked about the temptation that Christians have to be baptized either into nationalism uh, and conspiracy and on the one side and then on the other side into, um, into woke progressivism. And the dangers of, of both extremes. And then I preached on um, the church is a, a hospital for sinners. The church is not a courtroom, for, uh, is not a, um, a training camp for activists. Uh, and then we went from there. We talked about the church is for our conversion, not our actualization. How um, the Christian life is one of continual repentance and turning of our hearts uh, towards God. Uh, and then I preached on one with, I, I it was a clickbait title, right? I, I, I totally acknowledged that when I preached it. It, it. it was a very clickbaity title. The church is exclusive, not inclusive. And so last week I told you that today I would be doing a sermon the opposite of that. The church is inclusive, not exclusive. Remember, I told you, I'm showing you my hand in advance. And so in the last week when we talked about the church being exclusive, we looked primarily about at the exclusivity of Christ uh, in regards to our salvation and uh, our access to our reconciliation with God. Uh, and I also talked about exclusivity as it regards our participation in the sacraments of the church, particularly baptism and the Holy Eucharist. And we talked about what how what is holy is for those who are holy, and we dare not play with holy things or take them lightly, uh, as we saw in the stories that I referenced uh, in the in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. You know, Nadab and Abihu offering strange fire before the Lord, Uzzah trying to st- you know, grab the ark, uh, the Israelites taking the ark into battle when God told them no, and then losing it, and then Isaiah being purified before he was uh, called to proclaim the very word of God to an unbelieving people. And then in the New Testament as well, the story of, of Ananias and Sapphira lying to the Holy Spirit and the apostles and, and dying. So this can be difficult for us, brothers and sisters, because uh, our view of what inclusion means is more informed by its use in the wider culture instead of how we see inclusion as demonstrated in, in the scriptures and in the church. And, and so compounding that problem, too, is that there is this ongoing and subtle transformation of language that on the surface, like we don't notice it and it sounds good, but it doesn't quite mean what you think. Words like justice, inclusion, diversity, and equity. We use these words often now in our culture, and on the sur- these are good things to work for to support. But when you start to dig into what's meant by inclusion, diversity, and equity, a whole different. It's it's a little different than how we would normally use those words, and and I and, and that's kind of part of what the series is dealing with too is is looking at that, learning that, and seeing what's lying behind it and replacing that with what we see in uh, in the scriptures. So I made this reference last week 
that uh, when you hear of inclusion today, it most likely has the, fi- the, the following definition behind it. Quote, to create a welcoming environment specifically for groups considered marginalized, and this entails the exclusion of anything that could feel unwelcoming to any identity group. This is because everything must be understood in terms of systemic power dynamics. Inclusion is an expansive concept that could apply to silencing certain ideas, usually in the name of safety and preventing the trauma or violence that such ideas could inflict upon progress. That's taken from James Lindsay's site, New Discourses. So what results from this then, though, brothers and sisters, is being unable to say hard things and and necessary things except for saying hard things against particular perceived systems of societal injustice. And this then turns the church into what I talked about the first week, into a training camp for activism. It's because there's no gospel to call to repentance and transformation except the gospel of deconstructing society to destroy supposed systematic power imbalances that may or may not exist that are allegedly oppressing the marginalized. So a theology of inclusion results in the inability to call people to repentance for their sins and repentance. So this is a problem, obviously, because this is what's informing a lot of Christian theology nowadays um, and this is driving a lot of theology and work in mainline Protestantism, including our denomination and other denominations as well. Like this sort of, this is called, the name for it is called critical critical theory. Um, and it's very pernicious and it, it, it's too deep of a dive to go into today, but this is what's driving a lot of modern Christian theology in a lot of mainline churches and, and denominations like, like ours. So it's we need to be able to identify it and, uh, and to resist it and to push back with the truth of the gospel. So I asked you to have your Bibles. And so I want you to whoop them out or take your tablet or whatever that you have and turn with me to 1 Corinthians 9, verses 16 to 23. So get out your Bibles. You should have them right there. 1 Corinthians 9, and then look down to verse 16, and uh, we'll, be, we'll begin. If I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel, for if I do this of my own will, I have a reward, but if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with the stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not myself, not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not beginning outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. So we're going to talk a little bit here about St. Paul's mission, inclusivity and St. Paul's mission. 
So in this reading from 1 Corinthians, we've heard St. Paul talk about his rights as an apostle and how he doesn't exercise his rights among them in order to have nothing between his proclamation of the gospel and his building uh, of the church there in Corinth. And uh, this is a model sometimes that many Christian leaders would be be wise to follow. And and he begins in verse 19 here uh, something interesting. He's aware of the different groups that he's talking to, and he sort of tailors his approach to both groups, the Jews and the Gentiles, right? So the Jews are obviously the covenant people of God, descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the Gentiles would be a generic term for those outside of the people of God, right? The nations. And I think in Greek, I think it's ethnos. Uh, so the nations, that are, those would be the people who are not of the covenant people of God, who are seen as, as outs, those outside. And the, you have the, the Jewish people, this is the inside group. So St. Paul is ministering to both to both groups. Now, if he's spending time with the Jews, he's saying here he's not looking to purposely violate their laws. Right? So if he's spending time with the Jews, he's he's not trying to pretend to be something he's not in order to kind of fool them. He's aware of not trying to cause deliberate offense, which would then invalidate his message. And then when he deals with the Gentiles, he has the freedom to do, eat and do things with them that he may not have been able to do with the, with the Jews, right? So he's not trying to cause offense to either, so he can win both. What this first verses here does not mean, it doesn't mean that we can do whatever we want, like in church. I've heard this used uh, when I was you know, in the megachurch world, that we can do whatever we want now. All things to all men means we can do whatever we want, take on whatever we want of the culture to try and, and win everybody. That's not what this verse is about. Um, it's not talking about appropriating cultural milestones and then you know Christian, Christianizing them. You know, it's a it's a reference to the clear, deliberate intentionality that Saint Paul uses. It, it, it's the clear, deliberate intentionality that we ourselves are supposed to use as well. But what I want you to also to notice here is that he's speaking about reaching both Jews and Gentiles, right? So, like I said, the Jews and the Gentiles, and the Jews had the Torah, right? They had the law of God given to them um, by God uh, through his servant Moses. And the Gentiles did not have the law, right? So there you have essentially you know, paganism. So you have these two different groups, God's in crowd and the outsiders. And St. Paul is unabashedly and unashamedly ministering to both groups. But St. Paul's ministry to the Gentiles is a little bit controversial. Uh, and this controversy begins just after his conversion uh, with a vision that uh, God gave to St. Peter. So we're going to talk a little bit now about St. Peter's vision and inclusivity. So you should have your Bibles there. So if you have them, I want you to flip over a few pages to Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10. It's pretty pretty easy to get there. Uh, it's just before Romans, which is just before First and Second Corinthians. So Acts 10, 1 to 2 says this. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all of his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. So, Acts 10 begins with a description of this man, Cornelius, who is a Roman soldier. and Maybe he was retired at this point, we don't know. Uh, Not just a soldier, right, but he is a centurion. This means that he was a Roman officer commanding groups of men of up to 100. There was a very specific way that the Roman army was ranked. You had the masses of soldiers, and then above them you had the centurions that had groups, and then above the centurions was somebody else that they answered to. But the centurions commanded groups of men, right? And so commentators note 
and, and historians note that that uh, soldiers would get would get promised uh, if you come and serve in the Roman army, you know, if you survive, then you will be given land, um, and this land you can, you know for your family and it'll be yours and you have to tend it, but that's it's yours. And so this was a very big draw. And so centurions are a step above like the rank and file soldiers. They had the same thing, but they were also able to keep more of the spoils of war. So some of these centurions became became wealthy and they could even move up a little bit in, in society as well. And so uh, we see here, right, he's a Roman and he's he seems to have wealth because it says he gives alms generously to the people. And it says here that... Um, Oh, we also need to remember, too, right, that the Romans, they would come in and conquer an area and then they would just kind of stay and, hey, pay us taxes and, you know, we won't, we won't do anything to you. We'll protect you, maybe. Uh, and then you'll be, you know, you can kind of have the benefits of living in the Roman world, but really you need to give us your taxes or else. And they, they punished rebellions swift and mercilessly, like, like what we see in, um, in AD 70 when the Romans finally have enough of the problems in Palestine and destroy Israel and the temple and um, put an end to the, the Jewish rebellion. So anyway, so this Roman centurion, he's a God-fearer. He believes in and he worships the Jewish God, Yahweh. And he's and not just him, but it's just his whole household. And he uh, um, he supports him financially, uh, but he doesn't. he hasn't gone all the way to becoming a Jew himself, right? Which would result in him being circumcised. A lot of Gentiles were fascinated with the Jewish religion, but a lot of them wouldn't go all the way to being circumcised because, ouch, basically, right? It's, it's a lot to ask for. Um, this means then that he would always be on, on the outside. He would always experience some measure of inclusion. And this is something that what we see in the life of St. Paul and St. Peter, those barriers are going to break down. And then people are going to be admitted into the church, which is consists of Jews and Gentiles, without having to go through the Jewish um, initiation rituals. So anyway, um, Cornelius has a vision of an angel. This angel says, hey, there's this dude named Peter. He's staying at this guy's house. Go bring him here, and he'll talk to you about what's up. So he does that, right? And so say Peter's hanging out on his friend's house on the roof, and while he's at his noonday prayers, uh, he has a vision uh, of his own that kind of leaves him a little bit perplexed so if you have uh, your bibles which you should still uh we're in acts so flip over from acts 1 to acts chapter 10 acts chapter 10 and then let's look at verse 10 and he became hungry says peter and wanted something to eat but while they were preparing it he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending being let down by its four corners upon the earth and it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. So some of you may know this story, but some of you may not know this story, but it sounds like the kind of vision I would want to have, right? All of God's delicious animals all on one giant serving sheet, right? Maybe the world's uh, first buffet. But, but there's something at play here, right? So we have to remember, St. Peter uh, is a Jew. And many of us uh, have friends and fa- uh, friends who may be Jewish that keep kosher dietary laws, 
And in Leviticus 11 and in uh, and, and 20 and then in Deuteronomy 14, we get lists and lists of animals that the children of Israel were forbidden by the Torah to eat. Animals like camels, hares, pigs, shellfish, certain birds, some reptiles, and types of swarming insects. These were all seen as, as unclean animals, and eating them or touching their carcasses would make one ritually impure. Ritually impure. Now, we have to understand that ritual impurity is not sinful in and of itself, right? Ritual, like when we see, we read the Torah and stuff like this, if you touch the dead body of one of these animals, wash in clean water, and then by the nighttime, you know, you'll, you'll, be, you'll, be, you'll be cleansed. Um, the whole idea of ritual impurity is it all revolves around the compassion and the benevolence of God. It would only become sinful if one would try and go into the presence of God while impure. So th- there's a, an a excellent book called Jesus and the Forces of Death by Matthew Thiessen, and he notes this. Compassion animates the Jewish purity system. It was a protective and benevolent system intended to preserve God's presence among his people, a presence that could be of considerable danger to humans if they approached wrongly. Right, So we have this idea in our minds that the purity systems in the Old Testament were repressive and oppressive. And this comes, and this is a very popular way of looking at it. And then, of course, if you see things in the language of repression and then oppression, what does then that lead to? Well, that means that we have to get away from this oppressive and repressive, you know, systems. But that's not what the, the purity systems in the Old Testament are about, right? That's it's the same thing with all of the the laws that they have regarding basically everything. It's not repression and oppression. It is compassionate and benevolent. So this is what St. Peter's working off of in the back of his mind. Uh, I shouldn't eat these animals because they're unclean and they're going to make me ritually impure. Now what comes into play here as well is how the death and resurrection of Jesus is going to transform this, right? So the voice, um, after telling him to eat, says, don't call what God has cleansed unclean. Or common, right? So Cornelius calls Peter. Peter then, after receiving this vision, he goes to Cornelius's house and he preaches the gospel to Cornelius's household. And while he's doing this, the Holy Spirit descends. Everybody is saved. They all receive the gift of the Spirit that the apostles and, and those gathered with them in the upper room received at Pentecost. And Peter has them baptized. And so their whole household, right? sorry, Baptists, their whole household. Now, this is interesting because St. Philip is in Samaria, and they're being converted to Jesus as well. And uh, to the Jews, the Samaritans were sort of worse than the Gentiles, but the hostility was also shared by the Samaritans. Uh, but there's a hiccup. When he gets back to Jerusalem, Peter, that is, he gets into trouble. right? So you have St. Philip's mission over here, and then St. Peter being called over here. This has all kind of come to a head. And so when St. Peter gets back to Jerusalem, some people get angry with him because he went to the house of an uncircumcised man, a Roman soldier, and ate with them. But, uh, but notice Peter baptizes them, and he doesn't have them circumcised. And so we know from here, from the letters of Paul, that there were groups who believed that the Gentiles had to be circumcised before they became Christians. And this is the actual overarching theme of Galatians. Many people believe that Galatians is, well, how am I, how am I justified? No, the, the issue overriding Galatians is, 
do Gentiles have to be circumcised to become Christians? Do Gentiles have to keep the Torah to be brought into the people of God? So the puzzle pieces from St. Peter's vision clicks for him, and he realizes something. And in Acts 11, verse 12, he tells them of the vision that, that, that God gave him. And then he says this in Acts eleven twelve: The Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. He tells them of what he preached and what happened, and he concludes with this in verse 17. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, this is important. Then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. All right? So this is a big deal because it means that non-Jews who hear the gospel, right? Non-Jews are those who don't have the Torah. They don't have the law. They're outside of God's covenant people. It means that the message of the gospel is for them too. And belief in Jesus means that they don't have to go through this conversion step of being circumcised. Uh, to to be entered to enter into the church, and we also have to remember that at the time that circumcision was also for the person who received it a visible sign that they had to remind them that they are a part of the covenant with Yahweh, right? And and uh, we have to remember too, Christianity isn't a separate religion from Judaism at this time, right? You had the Jews who believed in Jesus and the Jews who did not believe in Jesus. They were seen as the same thing, right? with two different factions. But what we see happening here is that baptism becomes that covenant sign instead of circumcision. And St. Paul makes this point very clearly in Colossians 2, 11 to 12, when he says, In him you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Listen to this in verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith and the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So this is important because this is the way now that everyone is to be brought into the Christian faith, Jew and non-Jew alike, right? And not only that, there's no female circumcision in the Old Testament, thank God, right? Circumcision was only for men. But who gets included in the Christian ritual of initiation? Women, right? And sorry, Baptist children too. <laughs> well, male children, right, would be would be circumcised. Uh, I think on the eighth day. But now, what you have here is, we are people are being brought into the Christian faith now, men and women, male and female, right, regardless of where they are, through baptism, which is the circumcision of the heart. Paul will say elsewhere that that Christ does in us that we experience through the waters of baptism. So. They realize then that in Christ, this means all nations, Jews and Gentiles, non-Jews, they are all included in the kingdom of God. Now this is powerful because this is, this is something that's going to follow St. Paul's ministry and people are going to continue to fight him throughout his ministry on, on this issue. But it's a powerful thing, which is why Christianity spreads so, so, so quickly is because everyone's included, right? You have slaves worshiping right alongside their masters. And this, this inclusivity is going to eventually lead to the abolishing of slavery. That's not going to happen for a really long time. But like in the 4th century, St. Gregory of Nyssa is going to be preaching against slavery uh, in, his, in his homilies um, when, he, when, he, when he preaches, saying this, these two things, one of these things is not like the other. One of these things has to go.
So that's the inclusion, right, that we're talking about is that the kingdom of God is open for everyone to come in. So let's talk about the Jerusalem Council in regards to inclusion. So despite this controversy, uh, it doesn't go away, right? Because there were Pharisees who became believers in Jesus as well, right? And they, they believed that Gentiles still needed to keep the Torah and needed to be circumcised in order to be Christians. Now, the apostles and the leaders, uh, they met together to, to hash this out. And, and St. Peter points out the inability that they had in keeping the law. And then St. Paul and Barnabas, they testify to the work that they've been doing among the Gentiles and how it's been successful, and then St. James gets up and he, and he quotes from the prophet Amos, um, which says this, After this I will return and rebuild the fallen tent of David. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it, so that the remnant of men may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who does these things that have been known for ages. So St. James, he rightly understands, right, that this promise of Jesus and the gospel has been foretold in the Old Testament this whole time. That the remnant of faithful Israel and the Gentiles would be called by God and then built up together. And he doesn't leave it there. Even though they're Gentiles, they don't have to be circumcised and follow the Torah. But they still have something that they have to do. All right? So there is this inclusion, right? Everyone is welcome. But we ask that you don't do these things. He says here in verse 29 in uh, um, Acts 15. You must abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. This is Acts 15, 29. So we see here then that there are some things that they still need to do, that they still need to follow. And this isn't a made-up list. They're not just riffing this off the top of their heads. These commands that they give to the Gentiles are drawn from the Torah, and they carry just as much weight for the Gentiles as, as the Jews. So they're covering specifically here idolatry, meat sacrifice to idols, and sexual immorality. So both of these are expounded on in the Torah, like I said. And we see in the Old Testament what happens when the children of Israel indulged in these things, right? There's, this, there's a, a sanctifying and a holy view of, of worship and of sex. And in the ancient world, those two were intertwined together in pagan temples. You would have the sacrifice of animals, and there would be temple prostitution, and then you eating meat sacrificed to idols would be considered be considered participating in that worship. Um, and so this is something that the Gentiles would have had a very hard time with, right? And it's something that Christians today still have a very hard time with because the church like sets these limits and says these are these are our limits, right? Let's let's try and live this as best we can, right? But but we see here the primitive church, we still see open and inclusive with the Gentiles. But as part of their being brought into Christ comes this admonition, you need to live holy, sanctified lives. And, and this can't be overlooked, right? So the church is open to all and the church welcomes all. And I don't believe anyone should be turned away from the open doors of the church. But the church also calls on those who come in to follow Christ, right? The hard road of discipleship. We, <laughs> I've heard uh, people don't like this, right? But we say salvation is free, but we still have to count the cost of following Jesus. That's what he said, right? 
So let's uh, go back to inclusion. So if this is the pattern of inclusion, then that means then uh, a general blanket sense of openness to anyone without the call to repentance, without the call to transformation by Christ, without the call to constantly renew our minds by offering up ourselves as a living sacrifice, defeats the purpose of the point of even being gathered as a church. Right. So the church is not exclusive in the sense that it's meant to be a safe space where people can come to have their worldviews and identities validated and hear every, never hear anything contrary to the views that they already have of themselves as being enough. We talked about that a few weeks ago. You don't need anything. You are already enough. You possess everything in you that you know to be, to be true. You don't need anything. This is, this is something we see all over. And, and sorry, Jen, but what pops into my mind right now is, is spoilers in The Last Jedi, right? When... Um, Ray, she like you know takes the the Jedi texts and she takes them back and Luke thinks that they've burned up, um, and then Yoda appears to him and and basically says you know those books weren't very they weren't very page turning they were they were kind of boring she already knows everything that she needs in on the inside uh, to 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 do what she needs to do right which is which is garbage right that's not the point of 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 the church we don't already have it within us because we're already enough right we, we are sinners we are dead in our trespasses in need of the sanctifying and revivifying grace uh, of jesus christ and so what happens is because of this desire to be inclusive with all of the baggage that i talked about at the beginning this then leads the church into doing things that has an effect on our doctrine and our theology i'll give you an example right calling god our 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 mother right that, that's i understand where that comes from Right, in a, in a desire to be inclusive and in a desire to not offend anybody. And there may have been people who had really bad relationships with their fathers. I see where that comes from, this desire to be open and welcoming. We're not going to call God Father because it's also patriarchy, right? And we all know that patriarchy is bad. And so God is not Father. God is now our Father Mother. Or God is um, um, the God known by many names, you might hear. Or or the now ubiquitous Holy One or Holy God, right? We don't, we can't call God Father. I mean, but when you do that, you kind of negate a lot of, of the depth that we find in Scripture about our relationship with, with God, particularly about how God brings us in to be a part of the divine family. And then you also have this with you know, a gender-inclusive language um, in an effort to not seem like one side is being favored over the other, a shift, right? But when you do that, you you miss something, right? So, like in Proverbs one, um, some Bible translations will say, "Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly," but in an effort to be more inclusive, that gets changed to, "Blessed is the one who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly." Now, that's actually true, but when you do that, you miss the Christological implications of Psalm one: "Blessed is the man," right? And what is, what happens when Jesus is is you know, when he's on the cross, they, the, the centurion says, Behold, what? The man, right? So blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. His delight is in the law of the Lord. He keeps a day and that he will be, right? It points us to Christ. And it, we miss that when we remove that language in this effort to kind of be inoffensive and inclusive. And oftentimes what happens is when, in a desire to be inoffensive, we wind up neutering important things that we need to keep in mind. The church, though, is inclusive in that what causes any offense should just be the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? 
Now, clergy clergy people should not be running around trying to on purpose make people angry, right? Trying to deliberately cause offense. There have been ministers who have done that in the past, and it it's usually wound up very bad for them. Um, don't do that, <laughs> right? But in the preaching of the gospel, hearing the hard truths that we need to hear comes sometimes, and I referenced this a while back, it kicks up stuff in us when we hear things we don't agree with. And um, a lot of times that's the Holy Spirit trying to get our attention to something about us he's calling us to repent of. And so I think with all of that in mind, Hopefully all of this makes sense. Now, last week, the church is exclusive, not inclusive. This week, we talk about the church is inclusive, not exclusive. And so the only thing, brothers and sisters, that should cause deliberate offense should be the undiluted proclamation of the Word of God calling us to repentance, to faith and obedience, and the call, just like we see in Acts with St. James and his letter to the Gentiles, calling us to live in the way of Christ. Let us then be tr- learn how to become truly inclusive and let us not cut away the things that many others have cut away in an order to try and manufacture a safe space where no one is challenged and uh, where no one is called to repentance. And the only sin that we're called to address and work for is perceived sins of our socioeconomic uh, socioeconomic structures that we see in our society. And so, to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, be all glory, together with the Father and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening to the podcast for Zion Stone United Church of Christ. If you have a few minutes, I'd like to ask you to go to gofundme.com slash zionstonechurchrepairfund. Our bell tower is in need of some major renovation and repairs, and we could use whatever help you're able to give to us. If you'd like to find out more about us, check us out on our Facebook page, Zion Stone UCC, or on our website, zionstoneucc.com. Thanks again for listening. I pray that these sermons will continue to strengthen you in your walk with Jesus Christ, and may the blessings of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be with you.